cliffcentral.com. Thomas Grant is a barrister from England, but he's also a very, very talented man. He's, he's written plays, I saw. You've, you've participated in, in mock trials. You've done all kinds of interesting things. And you're also an author of great renown. Uh, many books are already part of the, um, the bibliography here, but I'm most interested to talk to Thomas Grant today about his new book, which is called The Mandela Brief, which is the extraordinary story of Sir Sidney Kentridge, whose name is probably, and I should hope, uh, something that is familiar to most South Africans. He was the famous anti-apartheid lawyer who not only defended uh, Nelson Mandela in the Ravonia trials, but also Desmond Tutu and Albert Latuli, so all our Nobel Prize winners. Um, a very, very interesting story, and we'll get into that in a second. But first of all, welcome to South Africa. It's lovely to have you here. Gareth, thanks for having me. Sure. You you really do have a very, very impressive CV, and I'll get to that in a little while, because I've always been fascinated by how the legal profession in, in, in England works, um, with the ins of court and sure. you know, what taking silk means and you know, why barristers are different to solicitors and, and how it all works. And it's, it's, it's quite mired in a lot of tradition, which uh, I think has actually created the impression for very many people, which is probably true, that people like you, and there are only few who can put QC behind their name, tend to be the smartest people in the legal profession. So, KC now, KC, Gareth. that's right, quite right, sorry. We, we, it's, it's, a, it's an easy mistake to make. Once <laughs> We've been QCs for about 70-odd years. Isn't it a good thing that you aren't basing that on the Prime Minister, or you would have had to change it every Back and forth, back and days? forth, yes. <laughs> the, can I just say, I was in the Constitutional Court yesterday as, a, as an observer, yes. uh, seeing an a, a absolutely fascinating case being, being argued in, in Johannesburg, um, and various of the advocates who I knew had invited me to come along and see it. And what are the, you're talking about traditions. One of the things that struck me was that the gowns that the SCs, the senior counsel, were wearing were exactly the same as the gowns that an English QC or KC wears. And the gowns that the junior barristers or advocates were wearing are exactly the same. Oh, really? They're, 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 you wear a different gown if you're, if you're a senior counsel as opposed to a junior. Have they ba- abandoned wigs? Sadly, they've abandoned wigs, and I think they abandoned them quite a long time ago. But oh. The bands are still there. Okay. And though we wear, um, wing collars, which were detachable wing collars we put on with little studs. And I noticed that the, the South African advocates were wearing just regular shirts with the, with the collars down and the bands coming down. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it in any way. I, should I don't say. think it looks as good. I'll, I'll just say that. No, it is, it is fascinating. And you've dealt with some really interesting cases. I hope we'll be able to touch on some of those through the course of this conversation, but. First of all, why why the story of, of Sidney Kentridge? I mean, I, I, I can tell that he's a really interesting man, and he um, he's probably also quite well known to South Africans because of William Kentridge. Absolutely, as he Who, says, as he says, um, I'm now in the happy position that my son is more famous than me. <laughs> I think he's absolutely delighted by that. I think it's so rare in a family to have two absolutely iconic people in 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 one generation. From each other, and, and yeah. for both of them to have been so successful at such different things. Yeah, and there's been a, it's an annus mirabilis for both of them. Sydney's turning a hundred in uh, November 22, so very close to where we are now. Mm-hmm. And Williams had a Royal Academy in London one man show, which I've been to, which is a basically the whole of the Royal Academy taken over. Quite astonishing. Well, um, Sydney Kentridge, of course, is uh, a man who. Has a, a very interesting history, not only in law. I mean, he's a personality, um, non pare. You know, he's the kind of guy who could probably spin a really good story himself. But for for him to have some of this told 
by you, and really your writing is, is it's not only funny and, and clever and witty, but it's also really thorough, and you Thank know you, what you're talking about. So it couldn't be the kind of thing that a pedestrian could write, especially when it comes to law. And I'm sure lawyers are very nervous about people writing their stories unless they're competent in some of the more complicated stuff. Well, I, you, you, you asked me a, a little while ago, how I came about it. And I'm, I'm not necessarily the obvious person to write this book. And four years ago, I was not an expert in any way in South African history. And I know that South Africans are very, very uh, punctilious about their history. And I've, I've never known people who know more about their history than South Africans. Quite astonishing. Really? So I, I've, I've, spoken, I've spoken to a lot of South Africans <laughs> and their understanding of their past seems to be infinitely greater and more profound than my own country people i'm um, so glad to hear that well, no it, it's true I... it's true gareth and it meant it meant that taking on the task one had to be very tread very carefully because you were treading onto you know important terrain um and i wasn't as i say the natural the natural choice i immediately say it having been an english lawyer and having you know, spent most of my life or all of my life in in england i just happened to have written a book a few years ago about us another centenarian advocate mm. in an english advocate called jeremy hutchinson right. and and sydney who i knew from afar as a great man in england wrote me and wrote me a rather charming letter after the book came out and said he'd read it and had enjoyed it and we we met a couple of times and i obviously enjoyed meeting him but there there we left it and then a couple of years after that or three years after that a, a mutual friend who'd read my book about jeremy came up to me and said look sydney's now 96 he's got a lot of memories he's got a lot of great stories which we we need to we need to preserve and capture and i think tom as he put it you should write sydney's book and i said well look that's a huge undertaking and a you know not not something i'm going to undertake lightly and um obviously we need to talk to sydney first because one can't just start blundering in so we met sydney a couple of times and, and the mutual friend really knew sydney quite well and was very very friendly with him and and sydney was very was pretty not 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 immediately favorable to the idea oh, really? no, no largely because he's a very <laughs> modest man right as he as he said to to me and and edwin glasgow the the our mutual friend who's interested in me i'm you know i'm an old man now these are these are the things i did are way way in the past they're 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 historic now i'm just not sure anyone's going to be interested in me and we had to really persuade him that he was being frankly too modest and once we'd really established that this was not a biography although i write about some of his personal life it's not a biography it's a it's a book about the work not the man as a as a private man um he was gradually persuaded and and so after and, and also i think the fact that he'd read my earlier book made him realize that i wasn't some fly-by-night figure i would i would spend proper time researching the book and and properly conveying it because it's very easy to be very superficial about these things and i was you know conscious that i didn't want to given the contested ter territory we're in you know it's obviously very important territory um one just couldn't be casual about it and that was something that weighed heavy on me and um weighed heavy on me throughout the process of writing the book which lasted about two or two or two and a half years it had to be it was a, a short time because it really had to come out in his hundredth year which is this year 220 2022 well when you mentioned things weighing heavily on on, on you um, I can't think of anything that must have weighed any more heavily than the responsibility of having to defend the Ravonia trees and trialists um, <laughs> you know these are people who've 
who are all in, in South Africa, hallowed figures sure. now. Yeah. At the time, though, uh, he took an enormous risk in, in representing them. And it was a very difficult thing to argue. The stakes were extremely high. Um, and we might not have had our first democratically elected president had he not argued the way that he did. Not yeah. only in, in uh, respect of, of the actual trial, but also in the, in the, the, the sentencing, the mitigation of sentence, so, which w- would have been death. So Mandela was prosecuted many times. I mean, I, it's staggering that he was able to do all the things that he did in the 50s and 60s, um, because most of the time he was seen to be being pursued by, by the state. Mm. And yet at the same time, he was running the first black-owned and black-run attorney's practice in South Africa. He, right. uh, Mandela and Sisulu, and, and, and Tambo, sorry, um, which a firm that practiced, with a, flourished for many years and they had a huge, a huge practice. Um, and in fact, when I dis- the, the book is called The Mandela Brief. There's a slight digression here, Gareth. The book is called The Mandela Brief. And it was, the title is a slightly cheesy title, one might say, but it, it's a striking title at least. And the reason it was chosen in the first instance was because of Sydney's representation of Nelson Mandela. But quite late on in the writing of the book, I came across a, um, a, a an English judge who'd, who'd been born in South Africa and, and had emigrated to England in 19, in the very early 1960s and had been an attorney as a very young man in Pretoria. And he said to me, do you know what, Tom? I remember receiving phone calls from Nelson Mandela, who was a, an attorney in Johannesburg, phoning me up and saying, look, I've got a, an appeal in Pretoria. I'd like you to be my agent, my solicitor's agent, my attorney's agent, to, to go along to the courtroom. And I've, atter- I've instructed as my advocate on behalf of the, the client a, a certain Mr. Kentridge, so, he, so Alan Ward is his name. He's a famous English judge now in, in retirement. Um, remembered stand sitting behind Sydney in the late fifties in the Pretoria Court on the instructions of Nelson Mandela in Johannesburg, and that gave the meaning that the, the word or the phrase Mandela brief, you know, an, another layer of layer of meaning. So, as a, a Nelson Mandela, not only as a a lay client but also as a professional client as well, and then. Two years later, Mandela and, and a lot of other of the great figures of the uh, anti-apartheid movement, as you mentioned, are find themselves prosecuted uh, in the, the treason trial, which is which is tried in in Pretoria at the old synagogue, mm-hmm. uh, a remarkable building which had been sequestrated by the state for, for for security trials. Spends three years. I mean, this is he was in his mid thirties, and he took on a case, Sydney, with a, a whole with a bunch of other wonderful and great advocates, I should say, took on a case where initially 156 defendants were accused, the largest prosecution ever brought in South Africa, I think, or since, um, all accused of treason, which, as the you highest, say, get carried, carried a capital yeah. capital sentence. And um, for three years, between 1958 and 1961, with a couple of gaps, Sidney and some of his co- co-counsel go up every day from Johannesburg to Pretoria defending Nelson Mandela and the other co-accused. And gradually they whittle away. A lot of the co-accused get acquitted or get the, the prosecution gets dropped. But by the end, there are still 30 or so accused uh, who are in jeopardy of their life. And um, he, 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 he secures the acquittal. In fact, the acquittal 
This is the first trial mm-hmm. of all of them. And that was a an astonishing... What a blow to the old government. Yeah, it was an astonishing blow to the government. And especially when one thinks this was not a jury trial. This no, was a, no, a the trial... Stakes, the stakes were absolutely against yeah. them. And they had three, the, the, there were three judges specially appointed by the Minister of Justice, all of two of whom had close links with the National Party, all, of course, white, middle-aged, middle-class or middle-upper-class men, who one would have expected to be inclined to do the state's bidding and find these men and women guilty. But after three years of litigation, um, these three men, as the three judges, actually show just an interesting side to the apartheid regime, that the rule of law was not entirely killed off. This was a genuine courtroom. It wasn't like a, a Soviet people's courts. Trials, it wasn't yeah. a show trial. And Sydney's very keen to emphasise this, that one, although the rule of law wasn't flourishing in South Africa at that time, nonetheless, one could, it was worthwhile being an advocate. You weren't just conniving yeah. in a corrupt sham process. And of course, if you were a defence lawyer in Nazi Germany, you were a mere conniver in a in a sham process. It was not a sham process. And hence the fact that uh, Nelson Mandela and his co-accused were acquitted, this is in the first trial in 1961, showed that. You mentioned the Ravonia trial, that takes place in 1963 to 1964. Sadly, from my narrative, Sydney is not involved in that case. For this, this, I mean, relatively amusing reason. Um, his client, he had a client in the Ravonia case called Bob Heppel, who was an Englishman okay. and who was part of one of the accused. Bob Heppel <clears throat> is let out on bail before the trial starts. And he's been lined up, Sydney's been lined up to represent Heppel at the trial. And of course, there were all the other great figures who were, who were also lined up as, he, as accused. Yeah, he, was, he was required to do that. Yeah, and, and Heppel then fled the country. <laughs> He fled the country to England, then became a very illustrious figure in England. So Sydney had no brief. His client had had bunked off. So in fact, the Rivonia trial, Sydney wasn't at. Yeah. Um, and that was um, and, and Nelson Mandela and the co-accused were represented by a great a great figure who's I think very well known in this country still, and I think an airport maybe now named after him, Bram Fisher, absolutely, who was a huge friend of Sydney's, and they were colleagues in chambers together. Sydney was led by him; he was his junior in a lot of cases, and. Uh, eventually, as I write in the book, two years after that, two years after Fisher had secured, hadn't secured Mandela's acquittal because that was essentially impossibility. But as you say, had secured his, uh, his life because he wasn't famously, famously was not sentenced to death when everyone thought that that was a real risk. Fisher then achieves this great event, great feat. Then he himself is prosecuted, Fisher, as a under the Suppression of Communism Act. And it's fair to say Fisher was not only the leader of the, the South African Bar at that time, Sydney at this time is a young man. Yeah. He's not only the leader of the South African Bar, he's also the de facto leader of the South African Communist Party. Quite extraordinary. <laughs> this eminent commercial and criminal silk, who's, you know, the, 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 all the mining companies want to instruct Fisher, right. all the insurance and banking companies want to instruct Fisher in their grand commercial cases. At the same time, he is a communist, and at the same time, he's working to perpetrate and to, to expand the struggle. And he's then prosecuted. And who does he turn to, to defend him? Fisher, this is. Yep. He turned, and there's a very complicated story, which I won't go into, but he turns to his junior colleague in his group in his chambers, as we say in England, Sidney Kentridge. And Sidney has the melancholy task 
in this is we're now in 1965-66, has the melancholy task of defending his former leader against charges of, of a not 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 treason but sabotage related charges. Uh, an impossible task, actually, because the evidence was overwhelming. And Fisher, frankly, Fisher was not in any way ashamed of what he'd done. Took the view that I'm, I'm, yes, I've, I've committed crimes, but they shouldn't be crimes. I've done the right thing, and Sydney has to spend five or six days defending him as best he can. And you, you talk, uh, Gareth, about the um, the death penalty. One of Sydney's most powerful memories which he relayed to me was after his friend and and former leader and colleague Bram Fisher been convicted and again he was convicted under under for, for, for crimes that carried a potential death penalty he then witnessed Sidney the the prosecutor so another advocate standing up and saying to the judge we on the behalf of the state suggest that the proper sentence in this case against Mr Fisher QC, as he was, he was still a QC because he'd become a QC before the Republic, should be sentenced to death. And Sidney thought that was the most outrageous thing he ever heard, or one of the most outrageous things he ever heard in a courtroom, was to hear another advocate positively advocating the death sentence for, at, by, at that time, the most famous and most respected advocate in South Africa. Well, history has probably been much less kind to that no-name advocate than, than it has been to Bram Fisher. But you, you, the way you so meticulously told this story now, and, and this is what I loved about the, the, the book, is that you, you've gone into a tremendous amount of detail and, and effort to make sure that you get it right. Um, I'm sure that's because Sydney would have wanted it to be right. Before. And I would have, I couldn't and you wouldn't, in you any wouldn't. way stand it being wrong. Because <laughs> no, it would course. have been a, 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 a humiliation and B, just some, an unthinkable thing. Because one, you know, one has got important history in one's hands and one doesn't want to but trifle a, with it. What a, what a, what a story. This could be a movie. Well, if, if anyone's out there. Yeah. I mean, someone <laughs> should be looking at this for a movie. It really, though, in the way you tell it, it's, um, despite the fact that you said you didn't really know much about South African history before you took on the project, I mean, you speak as if you've been lecturing in history for the last well, 20 I, years. Well, it's kind of you to say so, Gareth. It's fair <laughs> to say I, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of transcripts of trials. I, I interviewed a lot of a lot of great South Africans who I've become very friendly with and who've been really helpful to me. I really want to emphasize that there's a huge body of of advocates and attorneys and judges of this country who I sent emails to out of the blue saying, look, I'm doing this project. I'd really love to talk to you on Zoom. I couldn't get out here because of the pandemic. I'd love to talk to you on Zoom and interview if you wouldn't mind. And to a man and a woman, they all said, I'd love to talk about Sydney. I can't think of anything I'd prefer to do. I'd like to do more. <laughs> they were so keen so and so generous with their time. So that was that was great. But just to go back, Gareth, if I may, to the – you talk about films. Yeah. Sidney was, has been portrayed himself in a film before. After the, uh, Biko, uh, inquest of 1977, which was, of course, a, an event that your listeners will need no reminding of, uh, a, an English play, or in fact, a South African playwright wrote a play of the inquest, which was, in fact, it was more a collation than a play, but nonetheless, nonetheless very artfully done, a two hour, summation of the inquest which was drawn entirely from the transcript of the inquest and um it was a famous play in its day and it was put on in in the london theatres there's a famous story if i may digress from myself where sydney went to the opening night of the play at the riverside theatre in london 
and and he went with his friend Bernard Levin, who was a famous, obviously a famous, famous um, journalist, and um, went to see the play. And and the play commences, and the magistrate, played by an actor, says, "Yes, Mr. Kentridge, in the way that I am, wait, it's your turn to now advocate." And it, it was said, I, Sydney claims it's completely apocryphal that when the, the magistrate, as played by whoever the actor was, said, "Yes, Mr. Kentridge," Sydney stood sitting up. stood up. Stood up as if he was back there in the courtroom. Incredible. Um, that was Bernard Levin's story. Sydney, Sydney claims it's not true, but it's still a great story. But it was then turned into a film, this play. I didn't know this. And, and the man who portrayed Kentridge, one of my f- absolutely favourite actors, Albert Finney, oh, wow. played Kentridge and played, and you, one can still see it somewhere, um, played it, played it very well, played Sydney very well. What a, what a, again, the, 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 there seem to be so many, um, historical threads that are all interwoven in the story. And, and I think some people are fortunate to be born at a, at a particular time and in a particular place to be able to participate in history the way that someone like Sidney Kentridge did. Well, he certainly participated in I mean, he was, he spent a good deal of his early life fighting in the war. Um, you know, he was, he was in the South African air force for a long time. And as a result only came to the bar at the relatively late age of 27, because, you know, four years of his, of his early life were taken up, or four or five years taken up um, with the but, war. But also to do these, these tremendously um, important and historic things and to have to been the, the advocate for these people at that time and being in your 30s, is, that's extraordinary. He, he obviously had, a, there, there's a streak of genius there. I mean, there are, there are people in the law, I'm sure, you're one of them. I'm sure you know many of them who are just extraordinarily clever people. And they are adept at this in a way that it can't all be attributed to experience and training. Some okay. people take to it like a duck to water. I've seen it happen. Gareth, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased you have such a high, a high and positive view of the legal profession. Many people, many people, I have to, I have to <laughs> no, confess to you, have a slightly more jaded opinion of the, the I, legal I profession. I do know some advocates who I, I would use the word moron to describe. Okay, it. yeah, yeah. But, the ones I'm talking about, like Sidney Kentridge, they are the reason they're so stellar and they stand out so much is because there's something special about. Them. Well, I, 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 I I've been a, a barrister in in London for for you know quite a few years, and you know while I was growing up in the law and, and a, as a junior, the the name Kentridge was a huge name in England because as I mentioned in the book, and as probably known to, to a lot of your listeners, Kentridge left South Africa gradually. Not it wasn't a it wasn't a one day I'm practicing in South Africa, the next day I'm practicing in London. He shifted his practice over a period of time during the late seventies and early eighties, uh, and into the mid eighties to to London, and, and set up as a, a barrister in in London, practicing in London. And he by the time I came to the bar in the in the uh, in the mid, early to mid nineteen nineties, he was. The most famous barrister in London, and he was the sort of he had this aura about him, um, and that is extraordinary because London is, is is not a place where outsiders can necessarily break in to the legal profession easily. You know, a lot of a lot of barristers in London who are all vying for the big briefs, mm. and within ten or ten or so years of arriving properly and full time in London, Sydney was. The leading advocate in London. And this, he's now in his in his in his sixties. Um, so there is something undoubtedly very special about him. I will say that, and the book has been 
described by some as tending towards the hagiographical. Mm. And Gareth, I have to confess, I plead guilty to to that charge, but with um, as I've said That's before, the worst thing with mitigating with who mitigating circumstances. Well, I, you know, I didn't want to write. It's not a biography. Yeah, it's not you, an objective you, you biography. That, yeah. It is a a celebration of of a great figure. But more than that, I hope it's a it's a celebration of the power of advocacy and how advocacy can actually change things for the better. And it's also, I mean, it's it's I mean, it's not just about Sidney Kentridge. It's about you know, I write about the trials at great length, and I try and put them into their historical context. So it's not just Sidney's greatest you, hits. You, you seem to. Uh, be especially interested in making sure that that we don't lose these great stories in the law. And, yes, and, and, that's and true. With these, how did that happen for you? Because you've got an, a, a, an illustrious career in law yourself. How much time do you actually have to write these books? Because it seems to me that you're a fairly busy man, and you've written plays, and and and. Um, yes, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, that's kind you're, of you you're prolific. So. You're busy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I am quite busy. It's fair to say I'm quite busy, and and. Um, my wife has a few things to say about that, um, as do as do my as do my long suffering children. Um, yeah, I I I like to say yes to things. I like to pack things in, and it 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 helps Gareth not watching television. As I keep telling people, it's an annoying thing to say. But I, if I was asked what are your favourite box sets, I would have no answer to that. Um, and I always see the, the the interviews in the newspapers where the person said, "What's your what 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 box set are you are you watching at the moment?" And I I would have no would answer. Would you at least be able to do Desert Island Discs? I well, Sydney was on Desert Island Discs. <laughs> know, Sid, right. Sydney, Sydney, I it's listened a, to all of them. It's a very charming. It's a it's a lovely. I mean, it's very rare that a lawyer is on Desert Island Discs because, as you can imagine, mm. lawyers are not necessarily thought of as the most interesting people to have on as interviewees. But Sydney was on Desert Island Discs. I think he was on his ninetieth birthday, and it was a it was a it's a it's a lovely it's a, it's a lovely forty five minutes is available on the internet. And I should say it was yeah he was ninety, which was the same year that he f- finally retired from the bar. That's a, that's, one of the, one that's of my favourite stories about Sydney is that he was on his ninetieth birthday. So this is in in uh, 2012 november 2012 he was retained in in great britain's in the united kingdom's supreme court which is like the 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 top court of of the of the land in some very very complicated appeal relating to complicated legal matters and it was like there were six parties there were hundreds of lawyers came into the supreme court and sydney on his 90th birthday stood up and made his submissions to the to the supreme court and I think unprecedentedly in the Supreme Court his, history, or perhaps the history of any courtroom in England, the the judges all wished him a happy birthday. Huh. Wow! And and as you say, a hundred, you know, and lucid and together. And some people start falling apart in their sixties, and yes, and he's he's still all there. He's absolutely all there. He is. I mean, I've I've only got to know him. I mean, I only became friends with him if I can say that. Uh, I hope I can say that uh, when he was ninety six, really. So our friendship is uh, is one of his late, later friendships, perhaps. And um, but you know, I spent an awful lot of time interviewing him about about his memories and going through a lot of his cases and trying to capture those memories. It's fair to say a lot of those interviews were at quite an arm's length because we were in the middle of COVID. COVID, of course. One of my horrors was turning up to interview him, sitting relatively close to him and giving him COVID. I mean, that was a, you know, there was, there was a lot of complications uh, in, involved because it was, this was being written in 2020 and 2000 right. and, and, and 21, but he's had a, he's had a very short retirement because he, as I say, only retired in, in um, uh, 10 years ago, but he's, I think he's been, he's really, 
had a good retirement and he's in his you know, he still goes to Glyndebourne a lot. He travelled to South Africa until I think his last visit to South Africa was in 2019. So you know he was coming here until 97 until the age of 97, and then only he would have carried on coming. But then the the dreaded pandemic intervened, and that of course put paid to any further any further visits. And he's celebrating, as I say, he's got a, a party lined up for his hundredth birthday, which I'm I'm very honoured to be invited to. That's terrific. Uh, you've you've done some very interesting cases yourself, and I'm sure that you, you're also one of those people who doesn't like to talk about yourself. You'd prefer if I just stuck to the book, but I can't let that happen. Um, it's not often that I get someone of your experience in the studio to talk about things that I'm also interested in. I mean, among other things, you represented Boris Berezovsky, didn't you? One of your clients. I did. A I long did. List of interesting I did. Clients. I did represent Boris Berezovsky. I. I. He was. Um, you may remember he had sued he had sued Abramovich for I think three billion pounds of some the largest claim in in British history, and and I didn't I wasn't involved at that stage, and he then lost the case. Contingency there would have been nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, he lost the case, but he had he had apparently promised all sorts of people cuts of the winnings, and then obviously there were no winnings no. because he he sadly lost sadly lost the case, and then. People turned on him and, and people sued him and I was brought in to represent uh, Boris on um, some of these claims that were then brought against him when he had his back to the wall and a poor chap was being, I mean, his whole life was spent no. talking to lawyers. And then we, we won a great, we had a great signal victory um, in, in 2000, I think it was early 2013. And then three months later, he died. And, uh, you know, we were, we had all this litigation, which we were doing. And then three months later, he died. And, and of course, his death remains mysterious. A mysterious. I mean, it, some people are very clear <laughs> that he did not kill himself. He did not take his own yeah. life and that he was, he was murdered. I have no special insights into that, but it was a, yeah, I mean, I met him a few times. He was an utterly charming figure, albeit you just felt this guy is, is ground down by, I mean, who wants to spend their whole life talking to lawyers day in, day out? And sadly, he was having to do that. Um, the the other person I'm very interested in hearing about is Lord Sumption. Yes. I've seen quite a lot on TV, and I don't watch much TV either, but when COVID hit, that was kind of one of the things we felt we had to do so you knew what was going on, knew what the rules were because they kept changing them every day. And I saw Lord Sumption on TV making a very strident yeah. and, and I thought extraordinarily well thought through argument against the lockdowns and the draconian measures that have been taken, not only in, in England, but all over the world. And I think I, I really, I didn't know who he was before. That. Yeah. Obviously he's not, not someone who would be familiar to South Africans, but I looked into his, his history and he's an extraordinary man. Can I, I'll spend a little time on, yes. on, on Jonathan Sumption because there is a Kentridge connection. Oh, uh, well the, the big one actually, which is that, Sydney, when Sydney arrived at the English bar, he joined a chambers which is a very famous and still remains a very famous and grand chambers called Brick Court Chambers. It was called One Brick Court then. And Sumption was in those chambers. And Sydney and, and Jonathan Sumption did a lot of cases against each other. Uh, they were, the, in fact, at one point, they were the two kings of the English bar, you might say. And they were, they were very good friends, but also doing cases against each other. And, um, when I when I had a, a, a launch of this book in in London, I diffidently wrote to Jonathan Sumption saying, "Would you would you mind giving a a, a talk a, a little a little speech at 
the book launch, which Sydney, of course, attended. And we had a, a lot of people came to the, port, the, the, the book launch, as you might imagine, because Sydney knows a lot of people. It's a very well-known figure in, in England. And, and Jonathan Sumption very kindly said, yes, I'll do that, and came along and gave a absolutely superb speech about, about Sydney. And, and, you know, Jonathan Sumption is a man who is not known for being effusive about the qualities of others because i mean he is often said to be the most <laughs> the most intelligent man in england yeah. and i think with some reason he is i mean he, he became the the leading advocate really after sydney after sydney sort of gradually Absolutely. wound down and um he he spoke with such warmth about sydney it was a very moving event and um just to say a bit a few more words about sumption because he's he's become he he was at the bar he was a, also a historian and he's written, he's written a five volume account of the Hundred Years War, which is one of the most learned undertakings. This is not pop history. This is yeah. history with thousands of footnotes. I mean, he's a medieval historian to begin with. He then became the leading advocate at the English bar. He then became a Supreme Court judge without becoming a high court judge. He went, he straight leapfrogged over. straight from the bar <laughs> to the top court in England an and, and, guy. you know, developed a very substantial jurisprudence as a judge then and then stepped down from being a Supreme Court judge. He then did, gave what is known as the Wreath Lectures, which is a famous set of lectures that the BBC runs and, is a, and has become a public intellectual. Mm. So he's lived many different lives, Sumption. And he's now, as you say, in the last two years, he's become a public intellectual. He's also become a polemicist. And he's, as you say, he's appeared on a lot of TV shows. Yeah. He's appeared on a lot of radio shows. He has written a lot of articles in the, in the English and possibly the foreign press. And he's got a very particular view on a lot of subjects. And he took a very firm view on lockdown. And uh, whether you agree with it or not, uh, it was a, as you say, it was a very, um, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a ranting view in any way. No. It was a very carefully thought Absolutely. out, incredibly analyzed view. And yeah. I think a lot of people say that now think that, that he may window. have a, he may have had a rather important point. Absolutely. That little window that I got into this man who you've just told us even more about. And now I'm, I'm more fascinated still. Uh, just, just seeing how he argued these things was a, a masterclass in, how to how to I mean, how to con convince people that they're wrong and that you're right. <laughs> so, some, just like Sydney, Sumption doesn't only speak or advocate in sentences; he speaks in paragraphs. If you listen to him being interviewed, as then there are lots of interviews on the internet of with Sumption, um, he he never fumbles for words. He speaks as if he was reading a book or writing a book. Is it? He has an incredible capacity for clear thought. And I think that's why one of the reasons why Sydney and Jonathan were were and remain such good friends. They did a they they themselves did a podcast, would you believe it? Amazing. Sydney's first and only podcast he did oh, yeah. about about uh, eight months ago. And I they were they were to they came together in conversation and I think it's available on, on YouTube on you on oh, YouTube right. to talk no, about I've the, got the lots old of days. homework. You're giving me so much homework here. Um can I ask you about this overlap between art, performing art in the form of, of plays and, and law. Because actually, when you think about it, what goes on in a courtroom is very often a bit of a, a performance. Um, it, it obviously has to be grounded in fact and, and good argument and sensible and, 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 um, and, and meticulous information and detail. But there is a lot of it that is about performance. A very beautiful voice helps yeah. and um 
Sydney has a beautiful voice, as we've got a lovely South African accent, but a quite a quite a soft South African accent. Um, the ability to know when to change register is vital. One of the things that Jonathan Sumption said about Sydney was one of the great ability, one of the great aspects of his of his advocacy is whenever he started a sentence, the court never knew how it would end. You know, he didn't. You could often with an advocate, you can predict exactly what they're going to say because there's a sort of form, form, formulaic quality to it. Um, I mean, in terms of the performative qualities of the Kentridgean advocacy style, and he, you know, he was well known as one of the great, if not the greatest advocate of the century. And that's my certainly my that's certainly my proposition. I of course, of course, there are there are others who would who would vie for that. But you know, the, he was calm and precise, but then would and I, he would dispute this, this this as being actoral uh, or or, or theatrical but there's then the the modulated flash of anger or the modulated flash of irony and if you get it right then it can be devastatingly effective in court but you've got to you've got to modulate you can't just be permanently angry if you are permanently angry and cross as some advocates are then you lose your court completely if you are precise and careful and then allow yourself moments of anger, irony, or wit, then you are much more effective. And Sydney was the master of that. And that, I mean, it's performative. Whether it's theatrical or not, I, I, I can't, I couldn't say, but it certainly is performative. And, and if you, there is a distinction to be drawn and, there between and, and the two. And you sound as if you're a master at this too. I, I would, uh, <laughs> Gareth, what, I mean, do I say to, said, what do I say to that? Well, I... I I don't know. I've, I haven't seen. But I've, I've, sure I've, you, I like. Sure I do. Are. I do like. I mean, I, I value the, the the art of advocacy. I mean, I, I don't classify myself as a, as a, some master of it. But I I do think it's important. There is art and, to it. Yeah, That's well, absolutely indisputable. A lot of a lot of commercial and chancery barristers, and which is what I broadly speaking mm. am in in England, are suspicious of advocacy as a concept. I think it's fair to say, and that they think. Too much performativeness is a bit a bit fly or whatever. I think it's fair to say I fall into the more performative, the the more flamboyant side of side of things. Can and I, I like I like and a bit I of flamboyance about, has has its no, I don't place. Know if this is true about Go you, on. but I, this is something I read and I thought was absolutely fantastic. Apparently, you appeared in a <laughs> in a, a Queen Boudicca um, mock trial. I did, <laughs> and you. Said that you posed a question. You, you were obviously appearing on her behalf. She'd I was. I was. I was leading counsel for the right. defence. I should make <laughs> she, it very, very clear. She'd been charged with terrorism. She was Queen charged Boudicca, with terrorism. Who, who uh, famously uh, attacked the Romans and yeah. tried to free the Britons. Absolutely, she was a famous queen and rode bare-breasted. And she, there's a statue of her just outside of Westminster. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, you appeared then to defend her, and you <laughs> used the line, "What have the Romans ever done for us?" <laughs> yes, and you, you did say the aqueduct. <laughs> there is something. there is the aqueduct, as the uh, as the, the Monty Python line goes. Of course, um, I, it was a slight, you know, look. I I I plead I plead guilty to I I, I allowed. It was a, it was a charity. There's a wonderful charity in England called Classics for All, which wants to expand the the learning of the classics. And one of the things they do is hold mock trials in the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, which is in, in London, just opposite Parliament. And they have trials of Alexander the Great or Socrates. And every year they, they do it. And this year, the last year I was asked to, 
to lead for the defense of Boudicca. And it's a sort of one hour thing. And it's meant to be, it's meant to be both funny as well as educative. Did you, did you prepare for that like you would for a real trial? Well, I was, given that the judge was a Supreme Court judge, I, and a lot of the audience were members of the judiciary and, and very senior silks. Well, I wanted to get it, I wanted to get it right. It was being filmed. It's on okay. YouTube. I didn't, okay. I, I really did not want to fluff it. I so I, so I actually prepared for it very, very carefully. I had a very good junior, I should say. And, um, you know, I'm pleased to say that, that my arguments prevailed and there Excellent. was an, an overwhelming <laughs> verdict of acquittal from the audience, Gareth. Um, are, are they going to make you a judge at some point, do you think? And would you like that job? One doesn't get made a judge in England anymore. One applies to be a judge. Oh, do you? There's the tap oh, on the shoulder. Just, I thought that happened like taking silk. No, 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 no. And taking, in the old days, the, one became a judge through the notional or the, or the metaphorical tap on the shoulder. That has been cleared away for very good reasons because it just perpetuated the old boy network, so to speak. That's now, it's now a level playing field. You apply to become a judge and you, it's a very long application form. It's a very open and transparent process. I should say, I have no ambitions to become a judge, not for some considerable period of time at least. Um, and I'm, sure I'm an advocate at the, at the current, I see myself as an advocate at the present moment. And also I'm just sort of becoming a judge can be quite constraining in terms of one's extracurricular activities. Oh yeah. And, and of course then you don't get to choose what sort of things you do. Sometimes you, you have cases brought before you that are completely uninteresting to you. you well, you are, you are, as a judge, you oh. are, especially if you're as a first instance judge, as a judge of the first level, you are doing whatever you're told to do. So there's a certain amount of going back to the starting point. What law do you love when, when, if you get a a brief um, and, and there must be some that you love far more than others, but which are the ones that you go, ah, can't wait to get my teeth into this or um, this, this is something sexy or exciting about certain stuff and other stuff not. And it, it varies from obviously from, barrister to barrister but what's your what's your favorite stuff to do well the doing work i mean having work at all i, I don't i do not want in any way to be presumptuous that you know, as they say the barrister is always terrified that he or she has done their last case and That's of course why you, they have a pocket in the back of absolutely your, you never know you know you there's that there as a self-employed person you're always worried you're always worried about you know am i you're only as good as your last case why am i you know there's there are many other people in the sea looking for the same briefs and why is it going to come to me so you so, have too many lawyers I think I think it would be um I think there are many many lawyers I mean now and, and certainly my daughter was telling me that every single person in her in her year seems to want to become a become a lawyer there it's a it's seen as a as a thing to jump into um you asked me what are my favorite what are my favorite briefs i i i don't do crime i've got to say it immediately i do what i describe as chancery commercial work which is work involving um business disputes company disputes uh, property disputes so they're not the most obviously um narratively fascinating cases but from my point of view they always throw up interesting intellectual challenges and factual challenges. So you can find, this is a very dull answer, but one can find interest in really many different types of case. And to the, to the outside world, the case might be absolutely dull as ditch water, but every case creates a forensic challenge, which is how am I going to win it? What advice am I going to give to the client? How are we going to get the client out of the particular predicament that they may be in. So there is, there is interest in all cases. I should say that I, you know, I, I'm very fond of 
fraud cases, and I've written a, a long and, and very turgid book on the subject, or co-written a long <laughs> and turgid book on the subject. And fraud is quite a big area, and it generates quite a lot of courtroom action. Um, and, uh, and in fact, one of the, one of the the, the 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 most I mean well-known cases I was involved with, although many other lawyers were as well, was a a case against a, a Kazakh oligarch called Mukhtar Abliazov, who was alleged to have been involved in, I think, the largest fraud in world legal history. He was alleged to have defrauded some several billion dollars from a particular Kazakh bank. Uh, um, oh, I mean, I, I, I say it was an allegation only. It's an allegation only. I'm, I acted or, for him, so I'm certainly not going to in but, any way cast what, any th- again, throws, stones against him. Again, it, this is a bit James Bundy. Well, the, 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 the great thing about being an English lawyer, or one of the great things, is that Everyone loves to litigate in England because yeah. it seemed to be a, a country, and rightly so, where you will get absolutely perfect justice, whoever you might be. I mean, not, not cheap justice, I should say. You know, the English lawyers are relatively expensive. I will immediately say that. But people choose to litigate in England because they think they're going to get a very high quality of return in terms of the in terms of the service they get both from the, from the lawyers and so to speak from the judges so you know kazakh kazakh banks suing kazakh former chairman of the kazakh bank you find them suing in england berezovsky is litigating in england abramovich is litigating in england i mean it's fair to say that the the russian work has slightly dried up because of the <laughs> oh, sank because of the sanctions now. regime yeah. <laughs> um, but you know the russians love to litigate in in england and English lawyers were more than happy to help out. Absolutely. I mean, I think well, there, there are many questions about that, I should say, which probably we can't go into. Um, there are ethical questions surrounding those points, I suspect. I, uh, I'm so pleased that you managed to take some time to, to come and talk to us today. And I, I can't say enough about the importance of Sidney Kentridge and, and his contribution to our history. But thank you for helping us to tell our story in, in such an excellent way and for including – South Africa and and particularly our legal history, which I think is an area which very few people explore anymore, um, and and putting it really front and center. It's it's terrific to have you here, and well done on the book, amazing. Gareth, thank you so much for having me. Cliffcentral.com.